Hello, I'm Charu Kamaria. I'm a writer, journalist, speaker, and podcaster based in the southeastern United States. And I started this show after many years of working in newsrooms where stories of the day are boiled down to just a few minutes. I want to go more in depth, talk about the things that we all should be noticing and discussing, and help you understand what the story really is. So let's get started. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of The Story with Charu, and I'm Charu Kamaria. Um, this is part two of a three-part series that I'm doing about race and cultural identity in the United States, and I actually had to get super psyched to even talk about this today. And, you know, I was thinking about, like, why? Why am I having such a hard time and kind of putting this off um, because this is a topic that fascinates me and it's really affected me. And I think the reason is because it's super uncomfortable to talk about. It's, um, it's, it's just hard. It's a hard topic to address. It's, you feel like you're not doing it justice because it is in fact so deep. It makes people uncomfortable, but, um, you know, I, I said I was going to do it. So here we are. And I had to like get super psyched and, uh, take some deep breaths to talk about this. If you listened to last week's episode, I sort of said that um, I was going to, there was probably more that I wanted to say and I was forgetting about it. And then I kind of said, I bet as soon as I cut this mic, I'm going to remember what it is I wanted to talk about. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. I cut the mic and then I remembered there was this little story, a little anecdote that I wanted to share with everybody. Um, But it's actually probably a good thing to talk about today and to sort of launch into this week's episode. So um, I shared a little bit about, you know, my personal story last week, and there was a little piece I forgot that I wanted to, to say. So, you know, when you're an immigrant to this country, you have to kind of hustle hard. You have to work a little bit um, more, I think, than someone who's already here and isn't marginalized, basically. So my dad, even if you're a well-educated immigrant, let me add that. So, you know, my dad's a food scientist, he's a food technologist, and he was working a third, second or third shift at a manufacturing plant for quality control. And one night, this guy follows him out to his car. And he says, hey, you know, when I'm not here, when it was a white guy, uh, when I'm not here, I'm in um, a Klansman's robe and I'm in a hood. And this is what we believe. Um, this is what we think. I, I don't know how my dad responded. Um, I know that he didn't go to the police, although he could have, because that's a very clear case of ethnic and racial intimidation, which is a crime. Um, and I don't believe that he went to his bosses, his employer either. And the truth is, I've, I've got enough of these little stories for my life alone to make a one-hour Netflix special, but that's not what I'm here to do today. My point in sort of sharing this is to say that these things take an emotional toll on people. I mean, my dad is here today. He's fine. He's healthy and everything's okay. Um, but it does take an emotional toll on somebody, um, even though you may not be actually physically harmed. And 
I think for some people, you know, basically the darker you are, the more dangerous it can be. I mean, sometimes there is actually a physical harming that occurs. For years, I worked as a reporter, as a journalist for years. And I'd like to think that in that time, I formed really good relationships with the law enforcement that I worked with. Um, I had a reputation for being fair, for being honest. I got stuff off the record all the time, usually because they were trying to explain maybe the context of a story, giving me giving me some things on background, that kind of thing. And um, the ones who didn't like me, it was usually because I was tough and I did ask questions that needed to be asked. Um, still keep in touch with some of these officers. I, so I've seen a lot. One of the things that I I think is is super true is that if society doesn't deal with an issue, law enforcement will be the first group of people to have to deal with that issue. So like, let's say you have a rural county that their budget's been slashed, they don't have enough money for everything anymore, they cut animal control, okay? Well, guess who becomes animal control? Guess who gets a call when there's a pit bull on the loose? It's your sheriff's department. You know, mental health issues, you see this all the time. As a society, we're not really dealing with the mental health of our society. Guess who deals with mental health? Cops. Um, in fact, that's one of the most dangerous things that law enforcement can respond to is, in fact, uh, domestic situations. Um, because the tensions and you, the tensions run high and those things are so electrically charged. And I think that that's what we're seeing now with race. Um, we are not really dealing with this idea that is deeply embedded in people's psyche that dark-skinned individuals, especially the darker the skin, that the more dangerous they are. This is especially true, I think, of men, black men in particular. We're not really dealing with this. And, you know, years ago, I was in this museum in um, Curacao. Curacao is an island in the West Indies, in the Caribbean, almost like 30 miles, I think, from Venezuela, so super down there. And they had, so Curacao was also the, the capital, Williamstad, was a major slave trading port when the transatlantic slave trade really ramped up, in addition to like Charleston, Savannah, New Orleans. And it, this museum, Cura Holanda, it was, it, it was a small museum, but super, just amazing. I've never been, it's probably one of my favorite places that I've ever visited because they had they had remnants of slave ships, you know, the shackles and the chains there for people to see. But they also did this amazing thing where they took basically illustrations of the way black people were depicted from the very first time white Europeans encountered them on the African continent um, all the way through the slave trade through Jim Crow South, um, you know, th through the, through the centuries, basically. And, you know, remember, they didn't have photography, right? So you're dealing with an artist's illustration of showing you what something is like. Well, the very first pictures were normal. It was just like a drawing of black folks. Then as the transatlantic slave trade sort of ramped up, the pictures became almost cartoonish, um, exaggerated features. Um, they didn't even look like people. It was like, I don't know what you're seeing, but I don't think this is what a black person looks like. 
And it was exactly at the time when the slave trade was amping up. It was when, through the Caribbean, you saw sugar plantations, you know, and all of the byproduct of sugar, like rum and molasses and things like that. In the South, it was cotton, rice, and indigo. And it was, what was happening was basically you're trying to depict someone as less human, not even really a person. So you can justify what you're about to do which is going to be pretty bad. And I mentioned, you know, I mentioned Charleston. So I, I have gone to Charleston probably 30 or 40 times in my life, maybe, maybe more, I don't know, but a lot because it's, I've always happened to live in an easy drive from Charleston. So we used to go a lot when I was a teenager. And um, one time I remember being a teenager and we were taking one of those carriage rides and I asked, the guy asked like, hey, does anybody have any questions? And I said, yeah, I'd like to know more. We were right there at the downtown market, which actually, if you've ever been there, uh, I then since learned that that's not actually where slaves were sold. But I kind of said, hey, what what do you know about black history and African-American history? I'm super curious. And he goes, you know, I, I don't know a lot about it at all. Here's what's weird about that. At one point in time, 80 to 90% of the Charleston area and the Sea Islands, all those islands along the Georgia, Florida, and South Carolina coast were black because of slaves, because you had a lot of plantations. You, it was before AC, it wasn't exactly a great place to be unless you were there in the winter. So your owners tended to live inland and you might have had like an overseer, but mostly you had black folks there cultivating rice. Uh, doing whatever it is, right? But managing basically the plantations and creating all this, what ended up being generational wealth for those blue blood families in Charleston. And at one, I also had heard, learned this recently that half, half guys, 50% of black folks in America can trace an ancestor, if they're lucky enough to have those records, that is, can trace an ancestor that came through Charleston Harbor. How do we not know about black history in Charleston? I mean, that's, that's insane. It, it, because it's almost like you are purposefully ignoring not just part of the story, guys, like 80 or 90% of the story, right? Now, since then, things have changed in Charleston. I'll, I'll actually, I'll get, that, I'll get to that in a minute. I, I kind of mentioned Charleston. I'm talking about all the stuff with Charleston because in 2015, there was... Um, this awful massacre at Mother Emanuel Church, this historic AME church in Charleston. So Mother Emanuel, by the way, has this amazing, fascinating history. It's been burned down. People have been attacked there because it's been on the forefront of uplifting the black community in that area, um, education of blacks. Um, This amazing uh, historical figure, Denmark Vesey, You've got to look him up. It's the most interesting story, um, a, a significant part of American history, honestly. Um, you know, he helped found that church. And so it's it's got this very fascinating history. Well, in 2015, there were parishioners, you know, in there doing their business. It was a weeknight. And this kid comes in, this guy, and asked to sit down. And I, I'm sure that you guys know about the story and you know what happens. Um, he sits there for several minutes these people welcomed him, him in. I mean, really, in their way, being as Christ-like as they possibly could. And this 
person massacres them. This person who's a part of the white nationalist, white supremacist movement massacres them. And I can't help but link these things because when we are refusing to look at all of it, if we are refusing to be, I want to be comfortable. I don't want to talk about that. These things will keep happening. You know, we've got to address this. And um, it. I bring that up because through the years, like I said, I mean, so much of that history in that area was black history and it was absolutely ignored. And then you had this happen. Um, since, since then, a lot has changed. I will say this about Charleston and even South Carolina tourism. Um, there's been an effort to make plantation tours more historically accurate. Um, my family visited a McLeod plantation over the summer, which was very fascinating, very educational, uh, the children really enjoyed it as well, and it was very well done. Um, they're also building an African American History Museum in Charleston. Partly, I think, also because from a financial perspective, you're really missing the ball when you're in the tourism marketing industry and you're not addressing this. You know, the African American History Museum in D.C. is sold out years in advance, so. If you've got that story to share, you should. There's a demand for it. And it's a demand, not just by black folks. I'm not black and I want to know a lot about this. It's just, I'm curious. I mean, it's it's very fascinating. So I do think, you know, and I went on a carriage ride actually on the last trip I took to Charleston and our carriage ride was radically different where the um, the guy that was, you know, the ride operator was saying, you know, we, we've really failed in this way. And um, uh, he's the one actually that I learned the 50% of black people can trace a relative that came through Charleston Harbor from. So things are changing, but we've got to really be comfortable being uncomfortable. It breaks my heart um, when I hear my black girlfriends talk about how they have to talk to their boys about how they're going to be seen in public it doesn't matter how polite they are. It doesn't matter if they do everything somebody's asked them to do. The idea that they might still be perceived as dangerous. Um, and I have a son, and we we all owe it to stand up and tell the truth. And that that is frankly that is happening. That is the truth. Um, there is we've got to confront this. I also, like I told you, have have um, had a lot of interaction with law enforcement and I can see things often from their perspective as well. We are not doing our law enforcement community any favor if we are not dealing with this as a society and expecting them to solve all these issues for us. Um, I do think that some departments are better than others. You see this all the time. Um, I do think that um, there are some law enforcement, there are some issues that concern me that are sort of on a national trend. But I also think a lot of these folks do want to do a good job for their communities. They do want to serve and protect. And so we've got to be able to um, start addressing, identifying and addressing these issues. Um, it's it's uncomfortable, but we've got to get comfortable being uncomfortable or nothing changes, you know. Uh, that is this week's show. Um, I am going to take um, next week off to be with my family. I hope that uh, all of you are able to find some time with your friends or your family and some time to just kind of breathe and relax and take it slow. 
then I'll be back next week to kind of the following week, that is, to wrap all of this up. But as always, I really appreciate you listening and giving me some time. And I hope um, that you find some things that make your soul light and happy. You can support this show by subscribing it, liking it, and sharing it with others. And you can also follow the show on Instagram at the story with Charu. That's on Instagram. It's all lowercase, all one word at the story with Charu. That's where I post pictures of our guests. And I also have um, more fresh takes about current events that we really can't get to in a podcast format. And sometimes just random things from around the globe or just everyday life. You can also find more information about me on my website, charukamaria.com. That's C-H-A-R-U-K-U-M-A-R-H-I-A dot com. Again, that's also one word. And until next time, I hope that you find something that makes your soul light and happy.